So we have concluded our, uh, our time considering a, a, a biblical theology of worship. We have looked at uh, not all that we could have, but most of the highlights uh, of the way that the Bible has revealed to us from Genesis to Revelation in this organic, unfolding manner, this doctrine of worship. And um, so now we want to turn our attention to a more historical, church history, and systematic approach. So today we'll consider worship through the ages, particularly how it's been practiced through the ages. We probably won't get through it all today. Um, Should be two weeks, maybe three. Um, And so, we will begin today with worship in the early church and consider worship in the Middle Ages, and then we'll do the Reformation, Puritans, and modern worship practices next week. That's the goal. Um, Spoiler alert, this is... Slightly unfair treatment of all 2,000 years of church history to note this, but so we will be painting with broad brushstrokes. One of the most important questions we see the Bible posing, and this was really the, the essence of our question the last two months, is how should we worship God? Does He care how we should worship Him? It's a no-brainer to most Christians, I think, that God cares that we worship Him, but does it concern Him how we worship Him? This is a very important distinction. For example, the idea of that versus how. So, um, just because... Well, you've heard this phrase. You know, the end doesn't justify the means, right? Just because what you get at the end of some act or action is what you could call good and right, perhaps, doesn't mean that the way you got there was appropriate. So, just because we do something we're supposed to do doesn't mean that we're free to do it however we want. Um, When I was in school, I remember in my math classes, uh, my teacher's always saying, it doesn't matter that you came to the right answer here because you did it the wrong way, right? Why, is, why was that something that they always beat into our heads? Because just because I got it right there, it communicated I didn't understand the right way to go about solving that problem, and so if I tried to do something similar later, I'd only be lucky if I got it. Um... So, some biblical examples then. You know, Jesus says, or, you know, you've heard it said, don't murder, right? So, we're in here, I've not murdered anyone, I've not committed adultery. And Jesus responds, he says, great, you've not murdered anyone, you haven't literally broken your marriage vows by sleeping with someone who isn't your spouse, but that's all fine and good. But have you hated someone in your heart? Have you lusted after someone in your heart? If so, you're still guilty of those sins before the court of God. 
Right? That just because a particular action has been done, that the manner in which it wasn't done, I didn't hit him, but man, I wanted to. While it's perhaps commendable at some level that you didn't punch his lights out, were you flawless in the matter? No. Or perhaps you see a man on the street, homeless, and so you go and steal some money from a wealthy friend of yours to give to this guy. You did a great thing, right? You got him up on his feet. You got him a job. You know, he used the money and do it, but you had to steal the money in order to do that. So, just because you do something right, perhaps the way you're doing it is wrong. You have to break one law in order to, perhaps, uphold another. And so the reason why we do something and the way that we do something is incredibly important. And this is no less true when it comes to our worship. In our definition of worship, if you remember, we asserted that worship is something done according to God's precept. Right? It's this joyful, humble response of adoration, thanksgiving, service, and sacrifice to the triune God on the terms that He sets in the way that He alone makes possible. And so, how has the church understood this idea? Um, We do see this affirmed uh, clearly in the Old Testament. Um, Real quick before we dive in to the other church, Exodus 20, 4-6 is the record of the giving of the law and the second commandment the Lord says you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the sea you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments and so um, the Lord is forbidding in the first commandment the worship of another God. And uh, in the second, we see Him forbidding even the worship of the right God in the wrong way. Uh, Ligon Duggan makes this comment. He says, The second commandment forbids not only the making of idols, not only the use of images in the worship of the one true God, not only the introduction of things forbidden into the worship of God, but also anything not commanded or warranted. And he's getting at something called the regulative principle of worship, and we will look at that um, in more detail in a few weeks. But right now, what we want to stress is that God cares about the way He's worshipped. All of the rites, rituals, and ceremonies of the Old Testament law derive from this fact that God will be worshipped rightly. And we see a a tremendous example of His seriousness on this matter in Leviticus 10. Um, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu uh, are priests and they come 
offering their priestly service to the Lord. It says that each took his censer and put fire um, in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Right? I mean, that's intense. The wrong kind of incense, basically. Now, is God overreacting there? No, He had been very clear and specific in the way He was to be Worshipped, and they're authorized. They're offering unauthorized fire. They're worshiping according to their own designs and imaginations and desires. And so, God is serious about the way in which He's worshipped. So, how then has the church understood this point? If God cares how He's to be worshipped, how has the church sought to conduct its worship? Well, as I mentioned, we'll consider the question under a few headings. Today, we'll look at the patristic age and the Middle Ages, both the Western Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. So, what is liturgy? It's an important word in this conversation. What is the term liturgy? What does it mean? You heard it before? Yeah, an order of worship. It's a public, the public way in which a church honors God in its times of gathered praise, prayer, instruction, and commitment. Right? So uh, every church has a liturgy, even if it's insanely informal and hardly ever repeats itself in any predictable pattern. Right? Um, and so, what are the different uh, you know, the elements of worship, how are they organized in a typical gathering that uh, that's what forms the church's liturgy. And so, um, the lit- our church's liturgy, the way they've structured their worship, the things they include, the things they exclude, the order in which they do things, says a lot about how they understand the gospel and the way they understand worship of God. So worship in the patristic age. The word patristic uh, from Greek word means father. Um, and so the early church fathers, um, basically the second through the fifth centuries are those who make up this group. And so what were their worship, worship practices? Well, Justin Martyr Um, He was a 2nd century apologist, has this uh, very detailed and helpful description of the worship of the church in his day. He says, On the day called Sunday, there is a meeting of all believers who live in the town or the country. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read for as long as time will permit. When the reader has finished, the president in a sermon urges and invites the people to base their lives on these noble things. Then we all stand up and offer prayers. When our prayer is concluded, bread and wine and water are brought. And the president offers up prayers and thanksgivings to the best of his ability, and the people assent with 
Amen. Then follows the distribution of the things over which thanks has been offered, and the partaking of them by all. And the deacons take them to those who are absent. And those who are prosperous and willing give what each thinks fit. And what is collected is deposited with the president, who succors the orphans and widows and those who, through sickness or some other cause, are in want. And those who are in bonds and the strangers sojourning among us, and in a word, takes care of all who are in need. We hold our communion assembly on Sunday because it is the first day on which God put to flight darkness and chaos and made the world. And on the same day, Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead. So there is a lot that we can glean from that, particularly that the elements of worship, it seemed, that comprised churches um, in Justin's day were the reading and expounding of Scripture, prayer, and the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And we, uh, Justin doesn't mention it, but from other sources we know that uh, singing did play a part in the early church, um, though instruments probably were um, more of a rarity in their use, um, not because of a theological objection to them, but for other uh, practical reasons. Um, And so whereas in our day, the Lord's Supper is something that is not of incredibly high esteem uh, in most churches, um, in His day, it was. It was a central piece in the early church. um, And they even... um, celebrated it every week. One thing that's clear from Justin and other accounts is that worship in the early church generally had a firm and fixed uh, structure. Um, and there was essentially a twofold division of worship in this age. There was the uh, first part, the service of the Word, or liturgy of the Word, which entitled, uh, entailed singing public prayers, and a sermon. And it was open to Christians, to a catechumen, which were people who were uh, in the process of being brought into formal fellowship with the church. Uh, we know the word catechism, to catechize our children, right? Uh, a catechumen is a person who was being catechized, instructed in the, in the gospel and in the faith. And so, uh, formal baptized believers is what I meant by Christians, catechumen, and then people who were curious, who weren't either of those, could attend the first part, this service of the Word, liturgy of the Word. But then the second part, public prayers and the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, communion, or liturgy of the upper room, was closed to everyone except baptized believers. Why do you think that would be? Why would the early church not have permitted uh, anyone who wasn't a formal baptized believer in the church to remain for public prayers and celebrating of the Lord's Supper? 
Yeah, um, I think the idea is that uh, they saw praying and the Lord's Supper in this, uh, in, as a way of participating, right, in the Holy Spirit, participating in the Lord, and so unbelievers were not able to do that. And so they uh, shut them out. Um, prayer is a participation in the glorified Christ's own heavenly ministry of prayer by the Spirit. Since unbelievers lacked the Spirit, they could not do this. And the Lord's Supper was closed to unbelievers um, as well, as we said. Um, one explanation is that people, they, members brought their own bread and wine. Um, and so it was... Uh, used in communion as a whole church offering itself to God as together the members presented to Him the fruits of His creation. So, um, it was a way of distinguishing those who were part of the body and those who were not. Additionally, though, I think it's very possible that um, there was a level of trying to protect itself the early church from people who were seeking to spy out um, what was going on in Christianity Um, in dangerous times there was trying to keep sort of to themselves Um, it's possible people trying to infiltrate the ranks Um, and so that's something that's going to stand out to us, that even as a church that would affirm that the Lord's Supper indeed is only for the body of Christ, we don't make people leave who are not um, members of Ephesus Church. Um, additionally, we see that Christian worship revolved around Sunday or the Lord's Day, um, moving from Saturday to Sunday. And there were a number of feasts that were held uh, in the early church. Um, Easter and something called the Agape Feast uh, were two of the most significant. Well, in the patristic age, let me ask, any questions or comments? I know today like these are a little bit more historical and kind of a lot of, of info, but um, I think it's important that we understand uh, what the Bible teaches, but also how has the church changed and sort of matured in a lot of ways in its understanding of, of worship. And so in some ways we can look at the early church and say, man, that's like, that sounds just like what, what we would do, but then some things were like, well, that's kind of weird. Um, so we're just trying to get a good scope of what's going on. Uh, an increasing amount as time went on. And I think um, when you get into the, the fourth century, those things really become prominent. Um, I don't get the sense that early on they were, um, you know, the lifeline, you know, of the church or anything like that. Um, um, I don't know. Uh, I'll have, I, I can to think about that. Probably. Just 
So originally, like Easter would have just, you know, and that, it, it, and the hard part is, is that history is always sort of, this, this is the most difficult part about studying church history, is that everyone tells it a little differently, right? And so it sort of depends on who you're reading and all of that. Um, really, though, it's, it's within the, in the fourth century, in the, so the, um, what, 300s, right? That uh, with Constantine and the legalization of Christianity in Rome, and really it becomes mandatory after that. And so a lot of these things, because Christianity now is not something that has to be a real personal matter in order to hold it, because otherwise you could, you know, die perhaps. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, and so as the worship of the patristic church grew and changed, that happens especially in the 4th century of the saint. There's a lot of changes that takes place. This is the point where Latin began to be a much more influential language in the church, especially in the, in the West, um, in Rome, as opposed to Greek in the East. Up through the first um, century or two after the, uh, really the first two centuries, um, third century, you have Greek as the main language in the church, but then Latin becomes much more prevalent in the West. And here we really see this cultural drift that begins to take place between the churches in the West and those in the East, leading eventually to a, an entire split. Um, and within this fourth century, other elements regarding Easter and other um, celebrations were added to the mix. So Lent is added in this time. Um, Easter week, this kind of Holy Week, Passion Week, is at you know is people begin considering that something to uh, celebrate and to observe. Good Friday becomes pretty much as important in a lot of people's minds as Easter Sunday during this time. Um, the birth of Christ is celebrated on December 25th. Um, and all of these things, while most of them not good necessarily or bad in and of themselves, what we see is a trend towards ritual and ceremony, as well as cult saints and relics. People begin attaching a greater sense of importance in the 4th century to Dead bodies of those who were considered outstandingly holy in their lifetimes, especially martyrs. Um, people began seeking after pieces of, of clothing or bones, burial grounds, somehow connected with an apostle or, you know, Jesus, something, looking for these relics that they thought would aid them in their spirituality, would help them be more you know, heard by God. Which this leads into the practice of asking dead saints to pray for them, which I think began, you know, similar kind of to the way that we just might ask one another to pray for us, but then more changes into a more uh, actually praying to this person, to this saint of my car keys that I can't find. Um, help me find my car keys. Whoever, 
is in charge of car keys in the Catholic Church. I'm not sure, but um, I don't think it originally was probably as significantly awful as it was now, but this is when that begins to take place. The good news at some level is that this, these practices did not run completely unopposed. There were men who protested the church's actions, asserting that the church was lapsing back into pagan customs and practices. One man said this, Disguised as religion, we almost see the ceremonies of the pagans being introduced into the churches. People light rows of candles in broad daylight, and in all places they kiss and adore the dust of a dead body contained in a little pot and wrapped up in precious cloth. This begins to, to be the driving force of, of religion in the church heading into the 5th century and beyond. It was here that images and pictures of Christ became prominent. Uh, or pictures of other holy men being introduced into the worship of the church. Um, uh, we mentioned Constantine. Here he's legalizing, and then later it's mandated Christianity. And so what happens is that Christianity, I think, in this time, is moving out of the shadows of persecution into the light of coercion, and it wasn't quite sure what to do with itself in a lot of ways. And so the battles of icons raged um, and other things where, um, as we said, rituals, customs, traditions, uh, uses of objects in worship began to be prevalent as opposed to the preached word and the only objects being the uh, Lord's Supper and baptism. Okay, um, maybe we can get through the Western Catholic Church. We probably won't get in, get through the Eastern Church today. But um, any thoughts or questions about kind of essentially what took place in the patristic age? And again, this is a broad brushstroke, and um, I'm not in any way a church historian uh, expert or anything like that. So. Um, but that's generally the trend that we see happening. Okay. After the fall of Rome in the 5th century, the educational life of the clergy plummeted. Um, one obvious result of this lack of education of pastors, essentially, bishops, as they might have been called, um, was the death of the sermon in the Catholic Church. Bishops performed services, Holy Communion, hearing confessions, baptizing infants, burying the dead, but they largely ceased to do great in de uh, detailed study of the Word of God, and they ceased preaching sermons. Um, this, I, I found this quote I'm about to read you, and I think that this is one of the best like, just summaries of the issues with the Catholic Church Period. He says, um, it was Duncan, he said, Western Catholics thus became accustomed to a form of worship in which many things were done, but hardly anything was explained. So there were practices being brought into the church, there were things being done, but little, fewer and fewer things were ever explained as to why they were done that way. And so people just, unfortunately, instead of 
revolting immediately. <laughs> they just sort of went with it. Not everyone, but by and large it happened. Um, so, for example, language in the church was Latin, but as in this time, uh, as Rome falls and the, the Goths, Visigoths, the barbarians, and all these people are coming in and, and different tribes and cultures are clashing at this point all over, people start speaking different languages um, as the generations go on. The church did not keep up with this trend. Latin remained the official language of the church, even though men and women increasingly spoke other language, rather other languages rather than Latin. So imagine coming here every week, week after week, and either not quite understanding or not having any idea at all about what was being said, what little sermon may have been preached, or what you were singing in the songs, or what was said at the Lord's Supper, or what prayers were being offered. So all the while, it's continually... You come, you don't understand, you have no idea what's going on, but it's pressed upon you more and more that important for your soul is that you be here and that you continue to give money. That was important for them. And so this really was the... became the center of... uh, or what became the center of Western worship was Holy Communion. Right? That the early church, there was a preaching of the Word and there was the Lord's... Supper and with the death of Rome and educational life and the clergy, uh, communion was thrust to uh, the central place in the church. And while it's always maintained, it should always have an important place in the church, um, it should not be the central place at the exclusion of the preached word. So this Western. Communion or Mass, um, it it changed in its practice. Mass, um, from what I understand at least, comes from the closing words of the Western liturgy under the reforms of Pope Gregory the Great. Um, the Latin word essentially about this dismissing of um, everybody at the end with. The, the Eucharist, or another name for the Lord's Supper. Um, Eucharist's word comes from Greek word eucharisteo, meaning to give thanks. And so the Eucharist is a thanksgiving. So it goes through many changes and developments through the Middle Ages. Nearly all of them were bad. By the 6th century, even the Western Church really no longer required lay members to receive communion regularly. The priest would, but the, uh, the people wouldn't. They would receive communion three times a year, Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. Um, while the church didn't really initially intend for this to be the effect of their teaching, what they effectively taught was that um, this is such an important thing in the life of the church. And you must be a seriously, seriously, serious committed Christian in order to do it. Right? This idea of not coming to the Lord's Supper with mortal sins, unforgiven. And so this fear of eating and drinking uh, in a manner that's unworthy really prevented people from coming. 
Uh, and even by the time of Aquinas, the Catholic Mass had become much like a spectacle, a spiritual spectator sport. Um, he, it said that people fought for the best seat in the house so they could see the wafer being held up by the priest for their adoration. Um, and while this version of the Lord's Supper, of, of Communion Mass, doesn't, doesn't last forever, uh, there are still, in most places in the world, um, people only receive the host or the bread, um, and the priest will drink the wine. And so, uh, one other thing about the Middle Ages and the Catholic Church is instruments begin to play a more significant role here. Um, not necessarily probably as much as they would in churches today, but this is where um, we, we begin moving away from more a cappella type singing where, you know, originally the organ's used for a sounding note to begin with, and then it kind of grows from there. So, all right. Um, we don't have time to move on to the Eastern Orthodox Church, but uh, I'll go ahead and tell you that basically... Um, to sum up the Eastern Orthodox Church, if change and uh, development characterize the Western Church, stagnation characterizes the, the Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. They're essentially the same today as they were a thousand years ago. They've really not changed a lot. So, um, Any thoughts, questions on all that? I know that was kind of a lot and some level you just either have to take my word for it or think I'm a liar but alright well let me pray and then we can Father thank you for uh, your word and for your church and while um, we don't want to pretend to be experts in what has uh, taken place over the last 2,000 years in church history um, and we understand that history is, is always written from a particular perspective. And while people can attempt to be objective, it's, it's really uh, maybe not even possible to, to do so completely. And so I pray, God, that you would keep us from, from reading our own desires and thoughts and presuppositions into this as much as possible. And when we do those things, that we would realize that we're doing them. And while we want to be guided by what's taken place in the church, we, uh, we must not let church history be ultimately determinative for us. It is the Word of God that, um, that teaches us. And so I pray, Lord, that uh, You would help us um, to commit ourselves and submit ourselves to your Lordship, as you have revealed yourself to us in Holy Scripture. Be with us now, God, I pray, as we gather for worship. Um, thank you that Nick is back. We pray that you would uh, give him that great unction of the Spirit, that he would uh, be able to proclaim the Gospel freely and boldly and with love and zeal, and that you would speak to our hearts from Your Word and that our hearts would be changed and transformed further into the image of Christ as we hear from Your Word today. I pray that any uh, unbelievers that may be with us this morning, that You would 
save them, that You would convict them of their sins and bring them to saving faith. If they're visitors, I pray, God, that You would uh, help them um, in their search for a church home if that's what they're looking for. And I pray that if, if we'd be right for them and they would be right for us, that we would, they would cast our lot in, their lot in with us. And um, thank You, God, for Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that I pray. Amen.